0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Torah Studies. So this week's class is on the holiday of Shavuot, and specifically focusing on the book of Ruth and the story of Ruth. Um, I use this joke in our JLI class on Ruth. Ruth was married to a guy, she eventually married a fellow named Boaz. So the question is, what was... was He was the guy. He was no well, he, was, uh, he made profit. He had a field. <laughs> he was, so,
1: was going to condemn... The, am
0: I no, no, maybe a different guy. <laughs> so the question is, what was Boaz like before he married Ruth? And the answer is clearly he was...
2: Ruthless.
0: He was ruthless. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Now Now we can actually learn. So the story of Ruth is a beautiful story. It's a story of someone who is so um, just embracing Judaism and it's uh, it's traditionally read in synagogues on the holiday of Shavuot. It's read with a a special tra- a special trope, right? A special with of...
2: the the Megillah that I read on the three regulatory on the solstice government are all Maybe those Megilloth are, are, are read with the
0: same. They have the same. So interestingly, Chabad doesn't kind of skips over those. But um, in most synagogues around the world, on the, on the holidays, there is a special book that's read. In addition to the Torah and the Haftor, there's a special book. And on Shavuot, the book is the book of Ruth. Here's the question we're going to start with. The opening question is what? what why is Ruth read on. Shavuot. What's the connection thematically between the two? We're going to go through a bunch of reasons just to kind of understand the connection, and then we're going to delve into the story. So as far as outline of the class, first we're going to analyze why Ruth and Shavuot, what's the connection. Then we're going to look at some of the opening themes of the book, ask, I think, some really powerful questions, um, introduce some crazy, um, when I say crazy, I mean like just wild and like, bizarre uh, midrashic and Talmudic anecdotes on the story of Ruth. And hopefully we're going to resolve some of the big questions that we have and, and draw some <laughs> lessons for ourselves. Okay, so let's begin with the opening question. Why Ruth on Shavuot? Uh, let's introduce the fact that we do read it on the holiday. Text 1A, Adina Maka, with your brand new set of eyes. Page 1. <laughs> I love being able to call on you. All right, 102.
1: Okay, it is customary.
0: There we go. Now we know that Megillah is the scroll, so there's a special. And it's usually read out of a scroll or out of a, uh, out of a chumash?
2: Well, it can be done either way. In Israel, okay. they read, read it out of a scroll. Like a parchment scroll type parchment thing? Parchment scroll, but, okay. in, but in most synagogues, they read it out of a... You know, quote,
0: like a hafta or like a book. Okay. Like a or, yeah. All right. So we read the Megillah of Ruth and Shavuot. That is the Ramah. Rabbi Moshe Israelis glasses, his notes, on the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jerusalem. Text 1b. Here we have the Abu Dram, who gives two reasons why it's done, why this is done. Please continue, Dina Malachi 1b.
1: It is customary to read the Book of Ruth on the festival of Shavuos because it states in it, in the beginning of the barley harvest, and Shavuos is celebrated in the harvest season.
0: Continue, please. You got one more.
1: Um, another reason is that our ancestors received the Torah and entered into the covenant with God after having first circumcised, immersed in a mikvah, and been sprinkled with sacrificial blood, as stated in the Talmud. And Ruth too was a convert, as it says, "Where you go, I will go."
0: And converts undergo the same process. So Abu Dram says two. Two different reasons why, uh, why, the, why Ruth and Shavuot are connected. Number one, the story of Ruth, or part of the dramatic story of Ruth, where she goes to the field to get the gleanings of the field. Um, she's basically, she follows her mother-in-law back to Israel, and she doesn't have, they don't have any money, so they go to the fields where there are different items of food that are that are dedicated to those that need. So she goes, and it's the harvest season. So since she went to the field in the harvest season, so we read this book of Ruth on Shavuos, which is the which is the, also the harvest season. Okay, that's one answer. So it's like a seasonal thing. Fine. Second answer that he gives. Second explanation second that he gives is that Ruth is the prototypical convert to Judaism. She was someone who embraced Judaism. She she gave up. We know she gave up tremendous. She was the daughter of either the daughter or the granddaughter of a king. She was from a royal family. She was a princess from Moab, and she gave it all up to or, or I don't gave it all up, but she she was uh, she was all dedicated to uh, to, to Judaism, and the I, and the connection with Shavuot is Shavuot is the is the anniversary of the giving of the Torah, the giving of the Torah. We we, in a sense, converted to Judaism collectively as a nation. It was the first time we embraced collectively the, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, the covenant of Torah and mitzvot. That's when we embraced it, that's when we accepted it on that holiday, on this holiday, upcoming holiday, and that's what Ruth did as well in her own, in her personal life, in her personal experience. She did the same thing, therefore there's a thematic connection.
2: Okay. So what's not.
0: Yeah, I noticed that also, right? Yeah, with the exception of okay. uh, of that. It yeah. It
1: in the and sprinkled with sacrificial blood. I never knew that.
0: Uh, maybe back in the day. We don't do that now. There's no sacrificial blood, there's no temple, there's no. There's no... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's no. Um... <laughs> there's. There's no sprinkling of the blood today. Alright, now, let's continue. Let's look at another, another interest. This is fascinating. Another really fascinating connection between Ruth and Shavuot. This comes from the Talmud. The Talmud tells us of some back room drama that... Oh, this, is, this is amazing. So, King David the storied King David, right the famous King David of of Davidic dynasty fame. He is a descendant of Ruth. David David comes from Ruth. Yes, this very Ruth that we read about on on, on Shavuot. So David, great great grandson. So Ruth marries this guy, Boaz, who, by the way, when I mentioned that she went into the field for the gleanings, so it was this guy Boaz's field. She noticed him. He noticed her. They got married. They had a kid. That kid had a kid, who had a kid, and a little bit later there was the birth of David. So David, David, David comes from Yeshai, Jesse, who comes from someone else. Yeah, I don't remember Jesse's. Who comes? Obed, Obed, yeah. Who then comes from Ruth? So she, so David is her great grandson. So some say that the real... Now, King David is connected with Shavuot. Why? Because King David was born and passed away on Shavuot. It's his birthday and his yard site on Shavuot. So some say that the reason why we read the book of Ruth on Shavuot is to provide David's lineage, his yichus, his family tree. So, King Shavuot is about King David. So, who was King David and where was he from? Ruth. Let's read the story of Ruth. Now, why is it important to know where David comes from? Because there was a lot of backroom drama. Lolly, please read text number two. It's a long text. This comes from the Talmud, Yevamot. And it explains a very interesting dialogue between the king, the first Jewish king, Saul, and his officers, advisors, generals, and other scholars. Now, this is a reference to David. So Saul the king says to Avner, his general, who's who's this kid? And Avner says, I have no idea. That's the dialogue in Scripture. Says the Talmud. The Talmud asked the question. Continue. Here's the question of the Talmud. So what kind of question Saul is asking his general? Who is this youth? And the youth turns out is David. So why is he asking who's David? He knew who David was. David was his armor bearer. I don't know what an armor bearer is, but it sounds like somebody that he would know if he appointed him his armor bearer, right? I would imagine that he was holding, he was bearing his armor. He was his caddy, right? Let's think about golfing for a second, huh? Right? No, whose son, yeah. But he knew him, he knew the family. So, there's got to be another question. There's a guy, he had to have, so the Talmud says there was a much deeper question. It wasn't just, you know, who's this kid and who's the dad. It was much deeper. Continue, please. Uh, Salman, is he a descendant of Kuretz, or is there the
3: two sons of Judah? he is a descendant from Kuretz, he will eventually be king. If,
0: however, he is descended from... He will only be an important man. So it's known that the two sons of Yehuda, Yehuda gave birth, Yehuda and Tamar. Another interesting relationship. Tamar was his daughter-in-law, whose husbands, his sons, had died.
2: That was the other character I was talking to you about.
0: Oh, the Tamar. Ruth was
2: also. The
0: same makes same sense. It makes sense. So Tamar is the one who then dresses up as a woman of the street, and, and Yehuda doesn't know that it's her and, and, and he gets her pregnant and whatever. That's a biblical story straight up in the Torah and book of Genesis. Point is, she gives birth Tamar through this interesting relationship to two sons, Peretz and Zerach. And the tradition was that the kingdom would come through Peretz. Zerach would produce fine children and descendants and great-grandchildren, but not the king's. So Saul is paranoid. Why? Because Saul was told by the prophet Samuel, you're going to lose your kingdom. So now he's thinking, is David going to be the one that takes over? Right. He's, he's not sure. So he asks his general, is David whose son is this youth? Avner?" Which means, as you said, not who's David and who's his dad, but going back a little bit in the family tree, you're going up the tree, is he from Peretz or Zerach? Now comes along God, me. who is the troublemaker. Continue. <laughs> Whoa, heat shots fired. He's like, you're asking if he's of royal lineage. Forget royal lineage. Is he Jewish? Continue. Uh, what is the reason to suggest that he may not be fit
3: to be part of the Jewish people? Because he descended from Jesus, who was a, Moabite, oh, a Moabitess. Um, I've never said to Doeg,
0: not apply to a Moabite woman. So again, Doeg says, so the Torah says that no one from Ammon or Moab can marry into the Jewish people even, after, even if they convert. So Ruth was from Moab which means that she wasn't allowed to marry in which means that her kids are you know, maybe they won't they're not accepted. So that's what Doeg is, is causing trouble. Avner says, what are you talking about Doeg? What are you talking about Doeg? It's be it's only a male ammonite a male moabite not an ammonites and a moabites not the females of the Ammonim, of amon if they convert they can marry in why what's the distinction so so avner continues no prohibition against marrying by women. hence David is permitted to marry a so here we go so uh, um, avner explains look there's a reason why the prohibition is only against the men not the women because the whole reason why they're blacklisted if you will is because the torah says they did not meet you the jewish people and offer you food and water and listen when jews are hungry and thirsty it's a it's a capital offense to not greet us with uh, with food and water so <laughs> And they didn't do it. So Avner explains, "Look, who was going to do that? It's the men. The men failed to do that. That's why we blacklist the men. We don't blacklist the women. The women had no part in it. Therefore, the women are kosher if they convert. Not a problem. They can marry in. David's fine. Ruth was a Moabite. She was a female, uh, she was a woman from Moab. Not a problem. She's kosher. David's kosher. Have a nice day." Doe continues to cause problems. He says, "What are you talking about?" So the men failed to greet with food, men. And what about the women? The women failed to greet the women, the Jewish women. So, so the women are also in trouble, the Moabite women. So Ruth is is, is not is not kosher, and David is not kosher. Continue. Abner no remained silent as he had no answer to this. It was logic. I mean, he 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 threw him a logic. He threw him back a logic. Okay. Continue. Thereupon And they In other words, he said the same thing. He said, wait a second, what's the logic? Because they, the men didn't greet the, the Jews, but the women also didn't, didn't greet the, the, the Jewish women. Okay, and, and no one knew what to answer. So now a person named Amasa comes to the rescue. Uh, now Amasa exclaimed whoever does not accept the following ruling shall be stabbed with my sword. Which is always a great way to start an argument. Either accept my argument or... Is
2: Amasa then yet here?
0: I'm not even sure. Possibly. Maybe. I have So Amasa takes out his sword and says, Don't challenge us, Doag, Doeg. We know what we're doing here. This is tradition from Samuel all the way back to Moses, according to the commentaries, that you can tell me all the logic from today to tomorrow. Well, the women, not, the men, not, not only were the men at fault, the women were also at fault, so therefore they should also be blacklisted. Baba Mites says, we know the tradition is that when the Torah prohibits... The Ammoni and Moavi, the Ammonite and Moabite from marrying in, even, even if they convert, it only refers to the men and not the women, which means that Ruth was fine. She was kosher, and it's not a problem. Based on this dialogue...
2: Wouldn't you want somebody like that defending your explanations w- on Torah? I would love like that. If they disagree with you, we're going to stab them
0: we stab you. So I, I would love, like, when I'm teaching a class, and maybe it's like a, you know, a big class, lots of people, I just need someone standing to the side with a sword. Being like, any questions? I didn't think so. so like, I mean, because it's like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Speaks off of a big sword. Okay, now. Uh, uh, he's a
2: character in the Bible um, and one of King David's followers.
0: That makes sense, now... Yeah. yeah, you know, he was the guy, he just had a sword, a guy with a sword oh. hanging around, you know, doing his thing. Maybe he was a knight. That's true. Oh. <laughs> a little early for knights, but he was like the first knight ever in history. He was like the er- of the early knights. All right, let's do text number three because this is where Abishlomo Alkabetz... You know who Shlomo Alkabetz is? No. You know who Shlomo Alkabetz is? No. Not- he is the author of one of the most famous prayers. Mm-hmm. That we, that we recite. That everyone knows. Yes. Lecha He even put his name in Lecha Dodi. The first initials, the first letters of each of the chapters of Le- Lecha Di spell out his name. Oh, okay. Shlomo Halevi. Shlomo, the, the Levite alphabets Okay. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. And, okay. Um... Don't confuse that alphabets. That's something else. He's alphabets. All right, take a look at how he makes this connection now. Text number okay. three. Here you, is. Yes. Now
2: go for it. Here he is in uh, in Kings. Yeah.
0: Right?
2: So this is when David is dying, mm-hmm. and he calls Solomon over and he gives him advice. And remember what um, what Yoav Ben Suriah did to me. Mm-hmm. He, he, he was like the, um, what's his name, Arnold, uh, the Benedict Arnold, the Benedict Arnold uh, of, of of the Israelites. So he turned and he turned against King David. <sighs> Before he did that, though, he built a synagogue in Aleppo. Hmm. Yeah, so the synagogue in Aleppo, which has probably been destroyed, goes all the way back to Yahweh.
0: Nice. So, yeah.
2: Okay. So then King David says... It um, says here, Amasa Ben Yeter, that he, that he killed both of Ben Nair, King David's words just mentioned, and Amasa Ben Yeter. He, he killed them, right? Um, right. Anyway, so, so he created dissension among the ranks of...
0: Not a good thing. All right, so here we go. Rabbi Shlomo Alkabetz explains the connection now between Ruth and Shavuot based on that Talmudic passage. Karen, take it away. 106, please. I have no doubt that at
1: that point they sent
0: that a Moabite woman is fit to marry a Jew. Now, again, the, the, the implication here is that Samuel the prophet, Shmuel Hanavi, wrote the book of Ruth as an answer or as a refutation to those who challenged the halachic, the Jewish legal permission to marry a Moabites uh, convert. In other words, he was saying that you can, and look, here we go, here's the book of Ruth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the well, and the point is a man, even if the man converts to Judaism, he still can't marry him. I mean, Blacklisted.
1: But a Moabite woman... Well... Okay.
0: Yeah. yeah. Continue, he started. He started the book recounting how the story of Ruth happened during the time
1: of the greatest judge of all judges of Israel and Boaz married her with the consent of the court of this great judge because the entire question... Was raised on account of David. At the conclusion of his halakhic ruling, he said that from this story, Oved, the father of David's father Yishai,
0: was born. That's why we read about the birth of Oved at the end of the book to tell us that this marriage was was legal, was was totally cool, and it's a it's basically backing David's lineage. And so, since Shavuot is associated with David, so we read about this. Okay, that's another reason. Let's talk about the Rebbe's reason. In his Code of Jerusalem, in his Shulchan text number four, here's a fourth reason why Ruth is connected with Shavuot. 107.
2: Okay. It is customary to read the scroll of Ruth on Shavuot, which is the time of the giving of the Torah. This is to teach that Torah is only given, most effectively acquired, through affliction and poverty
0: just like Ruth, Ruth converted to Judaism even though it meant for her a life of affliction and poverty at that point. Things turned around for her. Right. But it's not like she embraced Judaism because it was going to be the ticket to her success. On the contrary, her mother-in-law told her, as we'll soon read in the story, we're kind of doing this backwards, but we'll soon read in the story that her mother-in-law Naomi said, why would you convert to Judaism? We don't have anything. I'm penniless and, and, and my husband is dead. Your husband is like, what are, you, what are you doing? And she says, no, I want in. So just like she accepted Torah with affliction, even though she would have experienced affliction and poverty, and others, it wasn't because of the fringe benefits, so too Torah is not about, I'll study Torah as a quick, you know, get rich scheme. Torah is meant to study. It doesn't mean you have to be afflicted and, and, and impoverished to study Torah. What it means is it's, it's done with, with a sense of humility and a sense of not an expectation to become rich and famous. Okay, and a final reason. I love this one, text number five. I'll read this one. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, I will go now, this is later on in the narrative where she moves back to Israel with her mother-in-law, Ruth does with Naomi, and they're penniless, And she's going to uh, glean in the field to get food because they have no money. I will go now to the field and I will glean among the ears of grain after someone whom I will please. Rabbi, huh?
2: Well,
0: they didn't have JJ back then. Yeah. I guess she was trying to catch someone's eye. Rabbi Rabbi Yonah said Ruth was 40 years old at that time. Though she was no longer a youngster, Ruth started on the elementary level of Judaism and rose to become one of the most exemplary women in Jewish history. The message to us is quite clear. But do you have this text? Yes? It's never never too late to start doing the right thing. Now, I don't believe that's in the Midrash, Ruth Rabbah. Because oh. I don't see it in the Hebrew. All no, I see is Rabbi is, Uh yeah. Bas Arbaim
2: Shanahaita.
0: Rabbiane Omar Bat Arbaim Hayta. She was forty. I don't know that second paragraph The you she was longer youngster. She started in the elementary level of Judaism. Um I don't know where that's that's a commentary in the commentary. I don't know where that's coming from. But it sounds good. And what's the point Ruth teaches us? as we get ready for Shavuot or as we celebrate Shavuot, it's never too late. So it doesn't matter if someone is 40, if someone's 60, if someone's 80, if someone's 90, and they haven't studied yet, Ruth teaches us, she, she became uh, an incredible figure in Jewish history, and, and, and she was 40 when she went into the field, when she converted to Judaism, and she went into Boaz's field, that's when she started pretty much her journey. So it's never too late, and we should never say, "Oh well, you know, I missed out on, on, on so much, you know, it's, 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 it's never too late. Now, fine, now we know why, well, some reasons why, five, five reasons or so why we, we read the story of Ruth on Shavuot. Now let's, let's look at the story itself, and let's, no pun intended, glean some insights from the story. What we're going to do is focus our attention on the opening chapter, which tells of the drama of how Ruth made her decision and the other personalities involved in that decision. Okay, Adina Malka, please read text number seven. This is pretty much the first chapter of Ruth. Now
1: it came to pass in the days when the judges judged that there was a famine in the land, and a man went from Bethlehem of Judah to sojourn in the fields of Noah, He and his
0: wife and his two sons. There's a famine in Israel. A man leaves Israel with his family to go to Moab to escape the famine. Who was this man? Continue, please. And the the
1: man's name was Elimelech. And his wife's name was Naomi. And his two sons' names were Malon and Shilon. Ephrates from Bethlehem of Judah. And they came to the fields of Moab and remained there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they married Moabite women, one named Orpah, and the other named Ruth. And they dwelt there for about ten years. And both Malone and Chilion also died, and the woman was left direct of her two children and of her husband. Now she arose with her daughters-in-law and returned from the fields of Moab where she had heard in the fields of Moab that God had remembered his people to give them
0: rest. So she moves with her husband and two sons. The husband is dead. The sons marry. The sons die. It's the mother and the two daughter-in-laws and there's nothing. And now there's food back in Israel. Then
1: she... said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each woman to her mother's house. May God deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the the deceased and with me. May God grant you that you find rest, each woman in her husband's house. And she kissed them and they raised their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, but we will return with you to your people And Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they should be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go. For I have become too old to marry, that I should say that I have hope. Even if I had a husband tonight, and even if I had born sons, would you wait for them until they grew up? Would you shut yourselves off for them and not marry? "'No, my daughters, for it is much more bitter for me than for you, "'for the hand of God has gone forth against me.' And they raised their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and departed. But Ruth cleaved to her. And Naomi said, "'Lo, your sister-in-law has returned to her people and to her God. "'Return after your sister-in-law.' And Ruth said, "'Do not entreat me, to leave you to return from following you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. So may God do to me, and so may he continue, if anything but death separates me
0: and you. This is the incredibly dramatic opening chapter of the book of Ruth. Where we read about the personal tragedy that this family faces, and now it's just the mother-in-law and her two the mother and her two daughters, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, and she decides she's got to go back home to Israel, and the two daughters-in-law go, start going with her. She says, "What are you what are you doing? Go back." And they say, "No, we want to go with you." She says, "Go back." Orpah says, "Okay." Kisses her and goes on her way, and Scripture says, "But Ruth cleave to her." What's the, what's the lashon? What's the language? Verus davka ba. Ruth cleave to her. She stuck with her, and she said, "Where you go, I will go. Where you bear, I will be." Etc. 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 She said, "I'm not going to leave you till death do we part. I'm with you and your people. Your God is my God." In other words, she's saying Judaism. I'm embracing hundred percent, and she goes with her. And life is difficult, and she's gleaning, and she meets her husband in the field, and, and it has a happy ending. Okay. Before we begin with some questions, we need to point out, who is the most famous Orpah that you know? Today.
1: Oprah Winfrey?
0: Correct.
2: Orpah.
1: <laughs>
0: Do you know that Oprah Winfrey's name is Orpah?
2: Really.
0: No. I shouldn't really state that as a question. Where comes from. Oprah's name, she was named Orpa. Orpah. Orpah? But they mixed, everyone called her Oprah. They
2: were dyslexic.
0: I don't know. They called her Oprah. It's just this documented fact. Her name is Orpah. 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 Like on a birth certificate, it's Orpah, named after wow. Orpah. Now, you'll see in a moment that if her parents knew what Chazal, what the Jewish sages say about Orpah, no they would never, ever have named her Orpah. We're about to see what, what's going on with Orpah. But, be that as it may. It sounds before we go, it sounds like both daughters-in-law love their mother, love their both of the women love their mother-in-law, and you know, they could have gone either way. Ruth stays or believes, but they both had good attentions, and there's emotion, and you know, each one makes a choice and they go on their way. Well, wouldn't you know it? Something interesting happens next. Something we know what happens with Ruth because Ruth, there's a whole book about her. What happened with Orpah, you might ask? Now, before we ask the question and we read the answer, you've got to know this. That is that Orpah's decision seems more logical than Ruth. Orpah makes sense. She, why should she go with her mother-in-law to an uncharted land, to a people that she doesn't really know, and give up a life, especially since she was a princess in Moab? It's good to be uh, Map, Moab by princess, American princess. It uh, doesn't really work. Whatever. It's good to be a... Right? Moe, princess. What'd she give? Why would she give it up? So, Orba makes sense. So, why is Ruth praised and Orpah, like, what's going on? Ruth? What was Ruth thinking? Orba makes sense. Orpah's logical. That's number one. It's not really a question. It's just the kind of, kind of a, like, a, like an insight. Now, the second thing is what happens next? Take a look at what the Midrash says. Peter, please read text number eight.
2: Okay. The night that Orpah left her mother-in-law, Naomi. She was physically intimate
0: with a hundred men. Is that really written in the... She, it actually... It, I don't know. It actually is written, that is what is written in the Midrash. Midrash says, that night she was with a hundred men. Now, doesn't make sense. Doesn't... Uh, a lot of things don't make sense about that but 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 also what doesn't make sense is how is she going from almost like ready to go with her mother-in-law she had started walking with her and then her mother-in-law says no go back what are you doing no we want to go with you no are you kidding me are you crazy and she said okay fine but she was like she was she was ready to go also orpah not just ruth until her mother-in-law pushed her she said okay fine And then she tries to push Ruth away and just go, go with her and she says no and she sticks with her. But somebody that was like basically ready to also give up everything to go back, to Naomi, to go back with Naomi to Israel and, and, and be part of the Jewish community. It's, she should go to the other. What's, what is going on over here? That's, that's one question. Here's another question. Let's look at what happened next. Let's look at what happened next. Text, no, hold on, hold on. Text number nine. Lolly, please read this one. Page 114 from the Talmud Tractate Sota. Uh,
3: these four were born to Orba in Gath and they fell into the hands of David and his servants. Who are these four so- sons of Orba? Rabbi Chista. Chista said, Saf, Madon, Goliath, and Yishbi.
0: Continue. Uh,
3: in the merit of the four tears that Orpah cried for
0: her mother-in-law, she merited to mother four mighty words. Talmud says that Orpah did cry sincerely before leaving her mother-in-law. Four tears fell out of her eye. Because of that, she was given four mighty children. Who are these children? They were Saf, Madon, Yishbi, I went out of order, and Goliath. Of David and Goliath fame, you know the giant Goliath. All right. But God
2: is way south, so they're heading west to go to to, to
0: But she gave birth later. She got birth then.
3: Oh, so she yeah. traveled
2: she all had the way. Of, but she, on the way, she had hundred.
0: I don't know if that was that night that she can see. I I listen. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't ask. I didn't... I didn't. Uh, I didn't...
2: facts get in the way of a good
0: story. Listen, this is, this is the narrative. Now, hold on. So what is happening here? So Orpah is ready to go. She doesn't go. She's with the guys. She gives birth to these four warriors, but to the Jews, they were terrorists. We know what Goliath did. Goliath was taunting the Jews. He was mocking the Jews. He was causing trouble. For 40 days, he was st- every day he would come out and say, bring it on. Who's going to fight me? I'm a giant. Who's going to fight me? Until David came with his little slingshot and eventually slew the giant. 40 days he was doing this. Oh, why 40 days? I'm glad you asked. Car- um, wait, Karen, we're up to you, right? Wait, who just read? Lolly, you just read, right? Karen, text 10. For 40 days, the Philistine, i.e., I. E. in other words, Goliath, 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 the Philistine, he drew near morning and evening. Every morning, from morning till dawn, he would be taunting the Jews until David, he basically said, bring it on, who's going to fight me? And everyone was like, I'm not doing it. Until David got, and that was David's like big moment, big break. Okay. So we see that she was that she did get married. It's a very weird thing what's happening here. She cries four tears, which seems sincere. So she gets four sons, but these sons don't turn out to be so good. She walks forty steps with her mother in law, which seems like a good thing. So she merits the Sutter's done in good merit. So he was able to stand up and show his um, show his might for 40 days. But what was he doing? He was mocking the Jews. So like, what, she's being rewarded? But it's a terrible reward. It's a re- negative reward. Like, what's actually happening here? So, let's take a look at, what, at the bottom line. The bottom line is, the two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, there's a moment in time where they make, this, where they make a decision. And it's a decision like this. We all know th- those decisions. It so can go either way. Either I'll go with you or I'm going to turn back. right? Either I'm going to take the plunge or I'm going to... The crossroads. crossroads. Fork Fork in the road. And Orpah goes one way. Ruth goes the other way. And what our sages are telling us is look what happens. One gives birth to David. One produces a David. One produces a Goliath. One produces... an upright right, a, a Jewish king, and the other produces a giant Philistine uh, terror to the Jews. Take a look at how the Talmud sums it up. Text number 11. Binyam Benish, please read this one.
2: It is written, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and Ruth cleaved her. Rabbi Yitzchak said, the Almighty said, let the sons of the one who kissed fall into the hands of the sons of the one who cleaved.
0: Look at that. I love that language. This language of the Talmud is powerful. The Talmud is saying, each one produced children and descendants, and ultimately one fell into the hands of the other. It was Orpah's son, Goliath, who fell into the hands of of Ruth's great-grandson, David, the young David. So think about it, the Talmud says. The son of the kisser, fell into the hands of the son of the cleaver. One was a kisser, one was a cleaver. That's what it says. Orpah kisses her mother-in-law. Na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na. Right? So the, so the,
2: goodbye. She kissed her goodbye. Slingshot story is not true. He killed him with
0: a cleaver. Ah. Leave it to the cleaver. cleaver. So 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 <laughs> the son of the cleaver, the son of the kisser. There's the kisser and the cleaver. That's it. Yeah. The kisser and the cleaver. Orpah is the kisser, and Ruth is the cleaver. And it's, understand that the Talmud's language, well, it's, it's beautiful, it? But, it, but it's significant. And it's telling us, as the Maral we're going to see soon the Maral of Prague, the great Maral, the great of the golem, the great mystic, the Maral explains what it means. It's not just that that's how they expressed their love. One hugged and one one kissed her mother. She gave her a kiss and then she left. The other one hugged her and stayed. Something about the kiss and something about the cleave. Something significant there. And the Talmud says, not Orpah's son fell into Ruth's... Orpah's descendant fell into the hands of Ruth's descendant. The son of the one who kissed fell into the hands of the sons of the one who cleaved. It refers to the kiss and the cleave. It refers to it specifically and in its intention. So let's understand what it means. What does it mean to kiss? And what does it mean to cleave? So at first glance, you might think, what's better, a hug or a kiss? So, you might, so one might say, well, wow, each one has its advantages. Fine. You could... No. Cleaving means, in Hebrew, davuk means, means to be glued. stuck. Yeah. It's like, it's like, what, how do you say glue in Hebrew? Devek? Devek means glue. Super devek would yeah, yeah. be super glue, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. Gorilla devek, yeah, exactly. So, no, uh, no gorilla jokes. No, no gorilla jokes. So, here we go. Um, the cle- so, a kiss or a cleave, what's the difference? A kiss. Ah, well, oh. ah. Oh, that's it. where we're going. So sometimes you think a kiss is better, right? Yeah. Listen, I'm not weighing in on on, on every detail here, he, but here's the here's the overall point. A kiss can also be a kiss goodbye.
2: Well, it goes back to you. a
0: cleave.
2: Well, she does doesn't says, let go, huh? It says in Bereshit, Lachain, um ozev ish et, et imo, v'davak v'davak
0: Right? Thus, therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Yeah. And since then, Jewish boys have been leaving their... their, their no. I The Torah says, the Torah says right at the beginning that That the the way the world should work is that uh, a a man should leave his mother and his father. V'davak he should cleave to his wife. Cleaving is not kissing. Kissing is yeah. In this context, superficial. Kissing is like superficial. See you later. It's like the the you know the European uh, kiss kiss like thing. It's like superficial. A cleave is something different. But what does it really mean? So we're up to me. I think I got this text, text number 12. Wait, did I? Um, yeah, we did 11. Did I read? Who read 11? I did. Okay, so I'm up to text 12. Text 12 is Rashi, and you know Rashi. Rashi usually writes really brief comments, Rashi is like short. Text 12 is like the longest Rashi in history. Take a look at what Rashi writes. Rashi's explaining Ruth's um, monologue to her mother-in-law, where she says, I'm not going anywhere. Where you go, I'll go. Where you die, I'll die. She, like a bunch of the poetic thing, I- I'm with you. She could have said, I'm with you. She doesn't. So, so Rashi explains, it was a dialogue. Naomi kept on firing at her missiles like, you got to go because of this. And she answers that every line that she said was an answer was a rebuttal to one of Naomi's attempts to rebuff her. You ready for this? Let's see, Rashi. Where you go, I will go. Based on this, our rabbi said, that when a prospective convert approaches the courts to convert, we inform him of a few of the punishments, and if he he wishes to retract, he can retract. In other words, if somebody wants to convert to Judaism, you say, hey, you really want this? You You know how crazy this is? All right. So that if they, if they want to retract, they can. They're, they're, you're, you're being upfront about it. So here we go. You're ready? This is what Naomi told Ruth. Naomi told Ruth, on, uh, we cannot leave the 2,000 cubit boundary on Shabbat. You can't walk among the 2,000 cubits. Ruth replied, where you go, I will go. Where you can't go, I will go. Naomi continued, it is forbidden for us to be secluded, to be secluded a woman with any man who is not her husband. Ruth replied, where you sleep, I will sleep. Naomi said our people has 613 commandments different from all other nations Ruth replied your nation is my nation Naomi said idolatry is forbidden to us Ruth replied your God is my God Naomi said the Din administers four forms of capital punishment Ruth replied how you die I will die Naomi said the Din has two public graves one for those stoned and burned and one for those decapitated and strangled Ruth replied and there I will be buried in other words she was basically, no matter what Naomi threw at her, the most bizarre, the most maybe, at first glance, like cruel. And, never came to but she was, the right. she again, she's setting the, 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 the precedent for, it's not scaring what? off it's someone who a, wants to convert, but it's... Could be. Uh, we don't know if they ever did it. I know that the Talmud says that if a betin did it once in seventy so, years, it had like blood yeah. on their hands; they yeah. were murderous. So, yeah. But it's possible so, that it happened. It was about a murderous bet then. Yeah. Uh, so, but here's the point: Naomi is is using every weird. I don't, I, I'm not calling the mitzvah weird, but I'm. I just. But I, I retract that. But every um, anything that might scare her off, she's pulling out. Like, oh, Shabbat day of rest. You can't walk too far. No problem. Uh, you can't be with whoever you want, no problem. You can't... uh, um, We got a lot of mitzvot, no problem. Only one God, no problem. Uh, Capital punishment for sometimes, you know, no problem. She's she's accepting everything. So here, what's the point? This is what it means to cleave. This is what it means that Ruth cleaved to her mother-in-law, to Naomi. What it means is she didn't superficially say, yeah, okay, I'm in. Or... Conversely, she didn't superficially say, ah, you know what, nah, I'm, I'm not in. Rather, what she said was, whatever it is, I'm in. I'm, all in. I'm all in. And here we have to be careful. Because there's two ways to look at this. One way is to say, because obviously the message is, be a Ruth Cleaver and not an Orpah Kisser. I mean, that's obviously where we're going, right? I mean, that's, uh, and if you didn't realize, that's where we're going with this. Follow the model of the Ruth Cleaver and not the Orpah kisser. So let me qualify this. It doesn't mean all or nothing. And it doesn't mean if we're not ready to do everything, then then don't even start. What it means is the concept of accepting what Yiddishkeit, what Judaism is. Be able to embrace it for what it is, and then say, and I'm going to do as much as I can right now. But what is it? It is something. There's a difference between saying, this, it's here, I'm here, therefore, Judaism is here. Versus saying, Judaism is there, and I'm going to get as close as I can, step by step. This, this, there's two ways to look at it. As it says, a famous idea in Pirkei Avot, umi karvan la torah, it says about Aaron: ohev shalom, he loved peace; Rodev shalom, he pursued peace; ohev at he loved the people; umi karvan la torah, and he brought them close to the Torah. It doesn't say he brought Torah close to them. That would imply diluting the Torah. He brought them close to Torah. Yeah, it didn't take a day. It didn't take a year. Maybe it took a lifetime. Maybe they never got there. But the question is, do we? Are we able to embrace, to cleave, to to recognize that this is Torah, this is mitzvah, this is these are the six hundred and thirty commandments, and then say, and I'm going to take steps with Nio, with my mother in law, with and I'm going to take steps to get as close as I can and to keep on this journey, or do we say like Orpa? The kisser saying, yeah, I'll take whatever, whatever feels good, whatever sounds good. And yeah, the rest of it is, It's, it's probably not even a thing. In other words, do we recognize that that's the ideal and we're moving toward the goal? Or do we say, there's no goal. Do we move the goalposts? Like my favorite story with the guy and the king and the forest and the bow and the archer. We know the archer story. The king, yeah, you know the archer story. You've heard me say it a million times. The king goes into the forest and sees every tree has, has a, a target with a bow and arrow right in the, in the heart of the, right in the center. And the king is amazed, like, how, who's the archer? Who's, like, this incredible archer? It's a young boy. He so says, let me meet this young boy. All right. So he says, how do you do it? Like, how are you so amazing? He's like, easy. I shoot the arrow. And wherever it lands, I draw the circle around it. So that's what we call moving the goalposts. <laughs> so we're, I'm not suggesting here an, an all-or-nothing attitude because that's frankly not—that's not beneficial to anybody, and that's that can be very. Um, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, not motivating. That's not the word I'm looking for. But it can be. Impulsive. No, no, I don't mean impulsive. I mean it can be very um, intimidating. More than, more than intimidating, though. It can be very. Um, Demoralizing, maybe that's the word I'm looking for. Because, like, if, if, if I have to, it's either all, you know, if, if I don't take everything, then, then, then I'm, you know, then paralyzing. it's paralyzing. So it's too big. Well, we're not suggesting that all or nothing. Suggesting simply that Ruth had the ability to embrace all of Judaism on its terms and then say, let me take that journey. She didn't, she didn't become everything overnight. But she was willing to embrace everything and then take the journey. Again, the other option is to say, I fundamentally don't agree that, that this is what Judaism is. I don't think this is Judaism. This is not Judaism. That's a different, that's a, there's a, a different conversation there. So what we're encouraged based on this teaching of Ruth and Orpa, is to be the cleaver and not the kisser. Orpah was the kisser. She said, ah, it's a little bit difficult. I don't like that she, stuff.
2: She also is very impulsive.
0: Who? And so here's, here's the why, because of what happened next? Because of hundred. Yeah, so, let, so let's segue into that. You know, psychologically, sometimes when you get close to something and you can't go through with it, you have to go like completely the other direction. Can you can you can you kind of feel that energy where you you're you're close to something and you're almost there, but you can't you can't you don't you don't you can't make that jump. And so you have to reject outright everything that you almost embraced. This was in a sense it what if she had never kissed, she would have never gone to the other extreme. In other words, if she never was close, if she had never contemplated, if she had never you know, considered it and never you know, been almost there, she wouldn't have gone. You know, the, the extreme was because she got so close. She was so close to taking that jump, but she, somehow, for some reason she couldn't but when she realized that she couldn't or she wouldn't or whatever, she said she for herself, she had to completely rid herself of anything, any attachment to Judaism, Torah, mitzvot. And so she goes with this behavior to the exact opposite extreme. She goes completely 180 degrees to the other side. So that's, again, that is the rejection, the hate, the rejection that she symbolized. This is captured in the, in the Mayraal text 14, yeah. So,
2: and then as far as Ruth goes, I mean, it might be oversimplifying but you could say, the, the good things come to those who wait, um, you know, good things are worth
0: waiting for. Yeah, and, and, and there's power in embracing something and being on board for the journey, as opposed to saying, well, it looks a little too difficult. I'm checking out. Part of it, too, is like where they both came from. I mean, like, text 13 is like, I can't return to my family in the environment
3: of idolatry. Right. I mean, she knew, like, what the world was like for this other cultural thing, and she didn't want to return to that, even if it was maybe more comfortable.
0: The interesting thing is that Orpah, some say they were sisters. So she would have also been going back to the same thing. And yet, no, you're right that she, she knew the alternative, but I still think it's it's about her really being brave and absolutely courageous. Ruth was somebody who was fearless, she was courageous, she was honest, she she didn't try to she didn't try to make things accommodate her, she was trying to accommodate what we would call, I guess, in our context, certainly the truth. Whereas, and that's what it means to cleave. She was like, unconditionally, I'm cleaving. As opposed to Orpah, the kisser. So she got close. She flirted with the idea. She said, nah, not for me. And then, to reject it, she goes the opposite. She kind of has to get out of her system. Like, oh, I almost got all Jewy over there. Like, woof, let me get that out of my system. And she, like, totally goes... The opposite extreme. Take a look at text fourteen. This is from the Maharal of Prague. Look what the look what he writes here. one eighteen. Adina Malka.
1: The sons of the one who kissed Ortha, came so close to being connected, yet they rejected it.
0: And he's about to say they rejected it because they came so close. Continue.
1: But when she kissed, she demonstrated that she could have been connected because kissing is a degree of joining, yet she rejected it. Therefore, the sons of the one who kissed will fall into the hands of the one who cleaved because they are opposite, they will defeat
0: each other. In other words, Orpah, her descendants, go the she and her own behavior and her descendants go the other way to be the greatest. Um, the greatest antagonists and the greatest uh, adversaries mm-hmm. to the Jews later on, Goliath taunting the Jews and, and the cowering and uh, having them cower in fear until David stepped up. It's because of how close she got. Mm-hmm. It's because, like psychological, like she got so close she had to reject it so hard.
2: Did, did you
0: name the other three? You said Goliath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Goliath. I don't really know who those others. It's in one of the texts that says that she gave birth to. Goliath was number three. You know what they say about third giants. <laughs> Neither do I. By
1: Don, Goliath,
0: and yeah, shocking that we don't like use those names when we.
1: What, what, page? what page
0: is that? And it's one fourteen. Yeah, one fourteen. Uh, at the end of the first paragraph. Yeah, text nine. End of the first paragraph over there. Who were the four sons? Um, not the four sons of the Seder, the four sons of Orpah, etc. So what's the what's the point? What's the takeaway? The takeaway, as I mentioned before, is that, that Ruth is such an incredible role model of somebody who was fearless, someone who was fiercely honest, someone who was was ready to take take the jump, take the leap of faith, and just jump into something and and be ready to to go with it Orpah got close she considered it because she considered it we understand psychologically we're kind of putting her like you were analyzing her you know spiritually psychologically because she got so close she ended up when she couldn't go when she couldn't you know take that leap of faith she had to then reject it with 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 tenacity and then her descendants did the same And so in conclusion, we're encouraging tonight and we're we're all encouraged to be open to Judaism and to even one more mitzvah that perhaps is a little bit outside of our comfort zone. And instead of trying to make Judaism more accommodating to us, how can in one more area we be more accommodating? Torah and Mitzvot I want to to conclude with the transcript so rabbi very famous rabbi passed away in 2013 I believe or 2003 I forget which one his name is Herbert Weiner Herbert Weiner was a Reform rabbi in New Jersey he wrote a book called Nine and a Half Mystics very famous book in its time he wrote about Jewish mysticism. He wrote about... He was involved in some of the um, renewal, you know, the renewal movement. He had Jewish renewal. And very like, kind of like a new agey, very charismatic, super charismatic. Turns out, and no one... I don't, I don't know that many people knew this. Turns out he was really close with Lubavitcher Rebbe. And they had audience... They had like private meetings... I'll share with you the tra- transcript from what Herbert Weiner says they, they talked about at one meeting. This is in his own words. I'm gonna, I'm just, I'll am I'm I'll, I'll read it for, verbatim. I was discussing with the Rebbe the differences between Chabad and other movements. The Rebbe remarked that when you ask a question in Jewish law of other streams of Judaism, the ans- his answer will take into account every possibility. He will tell you that you can go this way, you can go that way, you can do this much, you can do more, you can do less. And in the end, you'll be invited to make your own choice, and you'll be told not to feel guilty about making such a choice. As the Rebbe said to me, the great fault of these Rabbis is not that they compromise, but that they sanctify the compromise, still the conscience, and leave no possibility for return. Whereas when you ask such a question of a Chabad Rabbi, his answer will take into account your potential. He may also present you with pathways to get to the end goal. If you cannot fulfill every mitzvah this time, he may encourage you to do what you, can, what you can do now and gradually try to do more to eventually fulfill what is asked of you by God. The Rebbe returned to this theme again and again, encouraging me to take whatever steps I could to gradually increase my observance and help others do the same. I asked the Rebbe what advice he had for people who do not want to return to Judaism in some way. Ooh. Sorry. I asked the Rebbe what advice he had for people who do want to return to Judaism in some way. In his answer, the Rebbe invoked the prophet Elijah, who told the Jewish people, Do not try to dance between two opinions. Do not try to dance on two sides of the fence, so to speak. Take a firm stand. Even if you can't do it all at once, nevertheless, take a firm stand and say, This is the Torah. These are the commandments. This is what I will gradually try to accomplish. And be wholehearted about your commitment. And that's it. And Herbert Weiner said that he, he didn't put on tefillin, but eventually he ended up putting on tefillin. He ended up putting on tefillin and doing his thing. It's a very, it's, it seems like such a subtle difference. It's like, if, if anyway the message is going to be, do whatever you can, so then what's, what's really the difference? But there's a key, there's a fundamental difference. One difference is to say there's no gulp, there's no, goal, there's no flag and the there's no go- there's no goal there's no pin golfing there's no there's no destination it's whatever whatever you can do the other way is saying no, no 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 there is something you can't get there now that's fine do what you can do but that's that's ultimately the goal the difference is whether you sanctify the here and now or you sanctify the ultimate, not at the expense of the here and now, but to lift a person to recognize that there is something more majestic that's being asked of them. And in truth, as human beings, we respond when we're being called to something greater than ourselves. If Someone has always validated and said, whatever, it's, whatever you do is fine, whatever you do is fine, it means that nothing that I do is fine. Because if everything that I do is fine, then there's something wrong with... If some if some if if there's a philosophy that tells me that everything I do is fine, then that philosophy is not, obviously not true because it's not possible that everything I do is fine. If the philosophy is, this is, this is where we're going, and how are you going to get there? What are we doing now today to get there step by step? And you may never get there, but what are we doing to take one more step? That's a radically different philosophy. That's being a cleaver and not a kisser. A kisser is, yeah, it's fine right here. A cleaver is. I'm cleaving to the end. I may not get there, but that's that's where that's where I'm cleaving. And
2: so it seems that, that you're always asking a question. You know, you're always asking questions.
0: Where can I go? Yes.
2: Versus, you know, proclaiming the fall.
0: This is this is what it is. Yeah. I that that's a nice way of phrasing it. So in the end, we're reminded today as we study a little bit about Ruth and Anshavuah when we. Focus more on Ruth, that our Jewish journeys, we should never be satisfied with where we are. We should always be striving for the next big thing, knowing that there's so much truth out there beyond us. That's not what. Ah! There you go. (laughs) To be called into service is an uplifting thing. We make a mistake and say, if you make it easier for people, Make it, make it easy. It's not about easy or hard. That's a wrong term. But if you make it, you water it down, let's say for kids, is that, oh, we'll make it like watered down. The kids will enjoy it more. The kids are like, what is this? It doesn't make any sense. What is this, fairy tales? Or is it like a ritual, an anti ritual? It doesn't make any sense. You, when you lose the, the, the depth, the truth which only exists, the truth is, is what it is. If you lose that, it's not, doesn't, it doesn't help. Rising tides lift all ships. I love it. I love it. There you go. With that, we'll conclude.